And I'm back. Did you miss me? Yeah, I actually missed you guys. Um, seriously, I've, I've actually missed doing this podcast. Who, who would have thought? Um, and it's a funny thing, too, because uh, I have to admit, it's been so long that I've been kind of nervous getting back to it. Um, my original plan was to be gone for about two months. As you might remember, I had a one-month stint in D.C., followed by a further three weeks in Europe with family and then back in Boston for 4th of July, which, by the way, if you haven't done 4th of July in Boston, you are totally missing out. It's absolutely overwhelming. Um, really an amazing thing. But yeah, I was I was kind of nervous getting back because if there's one thing that I discovered towards the end of last season and, frankly, even during this admittedly lengthy break, wow, I'm really quite touched. You, you guys all really like this podcast a lot. Um, I am really quite humbled. So thank you very much for that. It's obviously very inspiring. It frankly feels really good. Um, but yeah, with that, with that admiration comes, uh, kind of a pretty tall order to continue to do a good job. So, um, yeah, I was a little nervous to come back. Um, but I am back and gosh, so much to get into really, it's going to be, I think a very exciting season. And I just want to kick it off, um, with a few kind of mechanical bits of things I should discuss uh, in no particular order, um, advertising. So as you obviously have noticed in the last year or so, started doing three ad spots per per, per episode. Um, that's of course still going to be there. These are ads that are recorded through the anchor.fm platform where I produce these podcasts. These are automatically matched up with, with um, advertisers using some sort of internal algorithm, I suppose. Um, of course, uh, you know, I record it once and then that's the end of it. But I've had a few folks reach out to me suggesting that they'd like to record um, and, and I guess really kind of manage the ad spots with me personally. So not going through the platform. Um, I'm more than happy to do that. Uh, you know, it's something I've started testing and playing around with towards the end of last season. And so basically, if you'd like to do that, and of course, the benefit to to you is that you, you know, we can record this, um, this ad spot, we can tailor it and customize it for every single episode. So we can kind of evolve it over time. So much more flexibility and you can ensure that you get your ad on my podcast rather than some other one. But um, yeah, just reach out to me, shoot me an email, mark at markhogue.com or through my website at markhogue.com. Let's see, guests. So if ever there was an example of perhaps too much of a good thing, it was really last season when we had a guest, I think almost every single episode or nearly every episode anyway. Um, to the expense of the standard three-segment news spots. But based on everyone's feedback, I mean, this is really quite all right. With very few exceptions, everyone seems to really enjoy these these guest episodes, and I certainly do. Um, one of the great things about doing this podcast, as I've shared before, is it allows me to connect with, and indeed even to meet in real life, face-to-face, with some of the most brilliant people in the world, whether it's academics, um, attorneys, consultants, engineers, founders, um, investors, I've often said that I've had the chance to connect with and indeed even to meet more PhDs from around the world in the, what, year and a half going on two years of doing this podcast than I've ever had the pleasure of meeting in my entire life. So really an amazing thing, this, um, and I wouldn't want to pass that up for anything. So just, it's just so great. Um, but look, going forward, I do need to make sure to kind of tightly, for lack of a better word, kind of regulate um, the the interview requests. So as before, as we started doing last season, please, if you'd like to be a guest on the show, and I say you, this is often, it's often the case that it tends to be PR agents 
um, for your company, um, please make sure to head on over to markhogue.com. Click the link in the top right corner directly beneath the header image. It says something like submit um, submit for a podcast interview request or something. Um, click that link and go through the form, fill it out completely. The form is a bit lengthy. It serves two purposes, right? So one is to make sure that you and I are really on the same page and in terms of what to discuss and why. But also, yeah, it's a bit of a hassle. It probably takes a few minutes to submit. And that's really just meant to serve as a kind of a filter. I want to make sure that if you want to be on the podcast, then, you know, you really take the time to to fill it out and um, submit it accordingly. Um, let's see here. So, so let me talk briefly about the trip to D.C. And that's a perfect segue into not just today's first episode of the new of the new season. I say today, um, I forgot my little trusty timestamp. It is Tuesday, the 27th of August. This is, of course, episode 108. I want to dive into a discussion on my trip to DC, um, which really warrants a huge shout out to David Guyen, if you're listening. A huge thank you for inviting me to your connected car happy hour in DC, which really, um, yeah, so that was coincidentally, um, let's see, the first evening that I was in DC at the start of the one-month trip. Um, this really was the perfect way to uh, kind of kickstart, jumpstart, whatever you want to say, uh, the entire month in D.C., because through your event, I had the chance to connect with so many folks, and that was just like a, that just kind of catalyzed a chain reaction of just networking like I'd never seen before. Um, and incidentally, that first night, I believe, is when I met with, uh, I believe it was when I met with Greg Rogers, host of the Mobility Podcast, as I often joked with him, uh, the other autonomous car podcast. Um, but no, Greg's podcast is really much more broadly um, focused to urban mobility generally. Uh, it's a really fantastic podcast. Greg is a really great guy. So if you haven't yet discovered and listened to his podcast, please do. Um, but yeah, look, the, the the really amazing thing about DC was that, and I should just back up for a moment, The the way this whole thing kind of started was that in the months leading up to the start of that trip, so I went out there, what, in the middle of May, I guess, um, several folks here in San Francisco, and frankly, elsewhere besides in the world, um, you know, many of them started saying to me, dude, you're an attorney, you're, you've got eight years of startup experience, um, you've got a pretty solid grasp of science and engineering, like that's a pretty unique combination, um, and you know a thing or two about the autonomous car space, what are you doing in San Francisco? We need folks like you in D.C., kind of helping out with law and policy, the deployment, you know, regulatory things, you know, so on and so forth. Why UNSF get to DC? Some of you used rather more, shall we say, colorful metaphors to make your point. Um, but suffice to say, who was I to argue uh, with some of the most respected people in the space? So fortunately, my wife's able to work remotely. Her company's based in London. So yeah, not an issue there. So next thing we knew, we booked our trip and off we went. So the the highlight of the trip really was um, I had the chance towards the end, um, and, I, and I should say, by the way, the, the whole thing was an astonishing highlight, really, because uh, nearly every single day filled uh, from sunrise to sunset meeting with folks, uh, mostly in law and policy, yeah, so consultants, attorneys, um, and that's really kind of exactly what I expected and what I hoped to accomplish. But what I didn't anticipate was that I went in there knowing, I think, 25 or 30 folks 25 or 30 folks from LinkedIn uh, in DC, and I came out knowing something like 60 or 70, almost all of whom I had had the chance to meet with in person. So really astounding. Um, I think I was very pleased for for that in that one month I was there. But yeah, I think the highlight was surely in the several remaining days of the trip, I had the chance to meet with um, 
Jason Levine at the Center for Auto Safety. This, of course, was the center that was launched, I believe, by Ralph Nader back in the day. Um, really responsible for kind of all the all the safety things that we take for granted now with cars, dating all the way back to the requirement for something as elementary as a seatbelt. Um, and this, really, the timing couldn't have been better. Um, and I should say, what a really great guy. So, Jason, if you happen to be listening, thank you so much for your time. Really, really enjoyed speaking with you. Um, and, uh, yeah, it really helped prepare me for um, the next day's big event. This then was the penultimate day of my time in D.C. when I had the chance. I was invited to meet with some staffers at the U.S. Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation, um, during which I had the opportunity, albeit just 25 minutes or so, um, to present to them my three-pronged approach for really the proper deployment uh, and testing of autonomous vehicles generally from a federal level, uh, which really is the perfect segue to today's discussion. Now, obviously, before I dive in, I know that I've touched on this a bit in the past, but what's interesting is that ever since that trip in D.C., well, it's really been fleshed out in much greater detail. I ended up writing an entire outline on how this is supposed to work, and more recently, uh, just a few weeks ago, I finally decided to write it as an entire article. You can find this on Medium. You can just head on over to my Medium profile. It's medium.com slash Mark Hogue. Don't forget the little at symbol before Mark Hogue. Um, yeah, so the title of the article, if you'd like to read it, uh, is the FAVA, the Federal Autonomous Vehicle Administration. And this proposal is really a three-pronged approach to, you know, kind of for the next, well, basically within the next 10 years, which is, is kind of my way of um, streamlining the safe and the rapid deployment, as I say, uh, and the regulation of autonomous vehicles in the U.S. So uh, let me just dive into that now because, yeah, as I say, it's 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 a nice way to kind of pick up on various threads that we began to discuss last season. And in my mind, anyway, it really lays a pretty great fr- uh, kind of groundwork, framework uh, for the subsequent seasons uh, coming up, beginning with, with this season four right now. Um, so yeah, so the proposal really, it's three prongs, right? So the first prong is to effectively reclassify autonomous vehicles as their own thing. They are not a conventional vehicle. They're not a car. They're not a truck. They are an entirely new thing. They are an autonomous vehicle in as much as a boat is not a car or an airplane is not a car. Well, autonomous vehicles are not a car. This necessarily requires then that we abandon the five levels of SAE automation. So rather than having level zero through five, my proposal is that we, and this is not unique, by the way, I've, I've read this elsewhere also, I'm not the only one suggesting this, that we that we reduce um, the five level system to a binary system. So a vehicle either is or is not autonomous. Now we can somewhat use a bit of circular logic and define these two systems using the existing five level system. So a non-autonomous vehicle would be something which would currently be found uh, which would currently be a level zero, one, two, or three vehicle. An autonomous vehicle then would be a vehicle that today would be considered level four or level five. This is really important. You'll see why in a minute. Um, not least of which because it helps to, well, well I'll get to that in a second. Um, all right, so, so the next point then, and this is admittedly more of a strategy thing rather than a policy thing, but I do think that policy um, should really do its part to help kind of push what I'm about to suggest is that um, companies currently working on level five vehicles 
And yes, I know. I just said we should abandon the five levels, but just for sake of this discussion, so we know what we're talking about here, let me let me stick with it for a moment. Um, companies working on level five vehicles, by all means, keep doing it, but just just keep it in the lab. Stop talking about it. Stop publicizing it. Stop discussing it with the world. Stop promising it to the world. Instead, just focus on level four. Recognize that level four vehicles are effectively geofenced virtual trains. Enact policy to fast track that. Get these things deployed sooner rather than later. And I can assure you the first company that successfully deploys a fleet of broadly geofenced level four vehicles in an urban, you know, in an urban environment in a city, say it's DC, San Francisco, Boston, New York, whatever, whatever company accomplishes that first, they will win. They will win the race to an autonomous future period. I'll talk more about this in a bit. Um, so third and final prong to this approach is of course, what I've suggested in the past, the establishment of a Federal Autonomous Vehicle Administration, an FAVA, really to kind of complement, of course, the FAA, the Federal uh, Aviation Administration. The idea being, of course, to regulate, without stifling, state-regulated innovation, all aspects of AVs, including, without limitation, definitions, design, technology, safety, privacy, deployment, traffic, and road taxes, and, and you know, a, a lot of folks have suggested to me that you know, couldn't this just be a thing under NHTSA, for example? And yeah, sure, it could start that way. But I firmly believe that eventually it needs to be spun out into its own independent entity just due to the complexity and the, frankly, the, the, the nature of autonomous vehicles generally. I just, I firmly believe that in the same way that aviation required its own administration, which, by the way, also spun out of a prior thing before being the, you know, before becoming the FAA in 1958, I believe. Um, similarly, with an FAVA, it's going to have to be the same. It's going to, you know, fine, let it let it be born out of something like NHTSA, uh, but it's got to be spun out into its own thing. Um, but let's dive into this now, and in far greater detail than we've ever done before, let me dive in and discuss kind of what are all these various things, what are all these different elements that I think really necessitate an FAVA and why it's so important, right? So... Definitions. Um, first of all, as I mentioned a moment ago, we need to properly define and distinguish, therefore, as between autonomous and non-autonomous vehicles. So as we've said, non-autonomous vehicles are really just ADAS only, meaning up to but not including level four driving capability. So levels zero, one, two, three only. These, of course, would not be subject to FAVA regulation. As soon as a vehicle, however, becomes level four or yes, level five. Um, but yeah, as soon as it crosses over into level four territory, at that point, sorry, it's out of state hands. At this point, it is subject to FAVA regulation. And I'll explain this with kind of an example, practically how this would work, right? So let's take Tesla, arguably the furthest along by some metrics with a five-year head start to any other, any other company insofar as getting autonomous vehicles on the roads for consumers. And I say autonomous, meaning... Um, they're the closest to potentially deploying level four vehicles, or if Elon is to be believed in the shockingly near term, one to two years, let's call it even three years, which is also impossible to believe. He claims level five cars will be on the road. Here's the thing. Um, stifling innovation is bad. Enabling states to kind of regulate the testing and deployment is the correct way to do things. But up to 
only up to, but not including, level four. So, so let's say that right now Teslas are level two and arguably, arguably in some instances even kind of borderline level three. Fine. But as soon as Elon says, okay, today's the day we are flipping the switch on the Tesla robo-taxi network and our vehicles are level four or hell, maybe they're level five. Who cares? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At that point, though, it's not going to be as easy as flipping a switch. And I, and I know it's very hard for me to say this because I, I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, emotionally, I'm not a fan of regulation either. I, I just want to kind of streamline things as much as possible. But at that point, it must be the case that they get federal regulation, uh, I should say federal permission with, you know, and, and subject to federal regulation to ensure that the, that the fully autonomous capabilities of the vehicles, you know, pass muster effectively, Right. Now, obviously, this is going to require that we have an administration that has already established all the, rec- you know, the, the required kind of guidelines, standards, requirements, and so on. And, and again, this is really like what happened with aviation. Um, the example I've given a few times in the past is, of course, the, the FAA, right? So um, I'm overly simplifying, of course, but when Airbus presented to the world for the first time ever their fly-by-wire aircraft, which was really pulled from military and had never been used for civilian purposes before, you know, nobody knew whether this was okay for civilian use. Was a fly-by-wire system adequately safe? And for those of you who don't know, fly-by-wire simply means that um, rather than physical connections as between the controls in a cockpit, controlling the ailerons on the wing, the elevator on the tail, the flaps, landing gear, and so on, everything is done through a computer intermediary. So when you pull back on the control stick, for instance, um, there's no physical linkage to the mechanisms. Rather, the computer interprets the controls and, you know, does its thing accordingly. Uh, one interesting aside to all this that's pretty neat, by the way, is that in an Airbus, if you pull up or turn to a certain angle of attack or a certain degree of roll, and then you let go of the controls, the plane stays exactly in the attitude that you left it. It's pretty neat. Um... Anyway, so, so yeah, when Airbus wanted to deploy these, these fly-by-wire aircraft, nobody knew whether they were safe enough. And so, again, I'm overly simplifying here, but just to make a point, but effectively it was said, okay, well, let's just make sure they're at least as safe as the status quo, which was what? It was Boeing and its mechanical systems. Because nobody really knew. Um, you can see where I'm going with this, right? As an aside, and I'll touch more on this in a little bit, or perhaps in a future episode, perhaps, um, there's this big question, of course, as between LIDAR and computer vision. Obviously, Elon Musk saying, nope, LIDAR is just totally a crutch. Um, literally, actually, everyone else saying, no, he's wrong, that, that uh, LIDAR is the only way to do things safely now and for the foreseeable future. Never mind that, indeed, perhaps in 10, 20, 30 years down the road, computer vision will be adequate or even better than LIDAR. But the point is we don't even know, right? Because there aren't any standards. There aren't any baselines. We don't know what's good enough. We haven't established, okay, you know, here the, you know, here, here's the failure rate, which is tolerable. Here's the distance of, you know, how far something can see and, and such and such inclement weather and this, that, the other. We don't have any such 
any baseline standards. And so, okay, so so this kind of leads to the subsequent issues I wanted to discuss, right? So an FAVA then would also, of course, mandate features and functions and, you know, things like passenger overrides, anti-trap release hatches um, for the design of the vehicle. But with respect to technology, yeah, baseline standards, right? So not only LiDAR versus camera, but even LiDAR specifically. What flavor? 905 nanometers or 1550 nanometers? Um urban design. You know, we're going to have to establish the design and mandate future development of streets and infrastructure to be autonomous vehicle friendly. Must signs include QR codes? Somebody suggested no, this can be easily tampered with. Uh, Vehicle to infrastructure communication as needed and so on and so forth. This then, of course, leads into the need for safety, right? So there isn't even yet any sort of standards with respect to redundant systems, for instance. So so at Tesla Autonomy Day uh, earlier this year, you know, it was very impressively demonstrated that all hardware three level cars have effectively two completely separate main system computers that are physically and software sense separated to one another. They are fully independent systems. If one fails, the other continues along just fine. So this then has a fully redundant system. Look, in aircraft, you often have triple and sometimes even quadruply redundant systems. Now, who's to say that one backup system is sufficient? I don't know. We don't have enough data on it. Uh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But these are things that need to be established. Um, so what else? Society. Uh, Got to establish guidelines and thresholds for safety, especially as between the interaction uh, between AVs and non-AVs and, of course, AVs and pedestrians. Um, as an aside, uh, I've mentioned this before, it is a bit silly. Okay, it's actually ridiculous how people keep asking this question, well, what do we do if a pedestrian jumps in front of an autonomous vehicle? You know, um, I don't know. What do we do if a pedestrian jumps in front of a, a train or a bus? You know, developing autonomous cars to work, that's the real rocket science here. Actually, it's much more difficult, I think, than rocket science. Um, but establishing the laws around, you know, what you do if somebody interferes with an autonomous car, this isn't rocket science. We've already got these laws. Well, why is everybody trying to overcomplicate things? We already know how these things need to play out because we've been doing it for hundreds of years. Well, Okay, a little over 100 years with trains, for example. Um, There's no need to reinvent the wheel here, as it were. And of course, coming along with safety are things like criminal behavior. We're going to have to establish laws that govern, you know, the unlawful interference with AVs generally, those who try to commit criminal or terrorist acts. But look, again, this is stuff we've been doing for years, for decades already with trains, with aircraft, with with even parking enforcement officers and their vehicles, right? So this is not something that that needs to be you know, kind of developed from scratch. This is all existing law. We, we, we know how to do this already. Why should it be any different with autonomous vehicles? And I'm not even discussing things pertaining to the trolley paradox because I promise we're never going to discuss that again. I promise. <laughs> um, all right. Then, of course, we've got issues of privacy, right? We've got to establish guidelines and best practices for privacy and some quantifiable thresholds for the management of any vehicle or occupant data. You know, including things like geolocation, personally identifiable information, communication. These are things that are really going to matter very, very soon, very, very quickly, especially when you consider that it seems far more likely than not that all or certainly most of autonomous vehicles on the road, including and especially once we've got cars that are part of sort of robo-taxi fleets, as it were, we have to assume that these are going to have in-car monitoring systems, cameras, and so on and so forth. If not just for safety reasons, then 
really just for passenger comfort, right? So if you remember one of the prior episodes, we did an interview with um, the team over at Effectiva based in Boston. They do passenger monitoring to make sure you're not getting a woozy back there. Um, and, and, you know, it's, yes, on the one hand, this is a really big thing to make sure we get right, but at least with respect to in-car cabin monitoring with video camera, again, I don't think this is a thing that requires reinventing the wheel. Don't all, or at least most public transport systems have cameras to make sure things don't go all crazy inside the vehicle, right? Buses, subways, uh, taxis, even a lot of Ubers have cameras inside the vehicle already. Now that I say that out loud, isn't it a bit weird that airplanes do not? Huh. I actually don't know why that is. Why is it that we're okay with subways, taxis, Ubers, buses having cameras, but not airplanes? That's weird to me. If anybody has an idea, please let me know, because I can't think of a reason. I don't understand the difference there. Um, but yeah, so so a lot to discuss there, right? So a lot to figure out and get right from the beginning. But but again, I don't think, at least with respect to in-cabin monitoring, I don't think that's a huge reinvention of the wheel. Um, but yeah, this is where things get a bit more fun, right? So deployment. So we really need to work us on the fast-track deployment, as I say, on level four geofenced AVs, um, and we can do this by, as I've discussed in the past, so I won't get into it again now, um, you know, enacting laws and policies that, that really kind of um, fast-track dedicated AV-only lanes on streets, on freeway lanes. You know, remember, China is already building a freeway which has dedicated autonomous vehicle lanes. I just heard the other day that Germany is doing the same now. Um, as I've said several times in San Francisco, we've got these express bus lanes that are being developed. Why isn't, say, for instance, cruise automation working with San Francisco to deploy some of their little Chevy Bolts on those bus-only lanes? I mean, San Francisco would love it because they get to showcase that they're the first city in the world with, with an autonomous car network being deployed. And cruise would get to celebrate because they could say, hey, we're the first autonomous car company in the world to run an admittedly geofenced, but nevertheless, an autonomous vehicle geofenced network of robo-taxis on San Francisco streets. This would be a really big deal. You know, I wasn't surprised at all when I read. In fact, I think I'd said, even on the podcast, I could be mistaken though, I've certainly discussed it with others prior to the announcement that was made by Cruz that they were abandoning their level five deployment plans um, for the end of this year, 2019. I mean, yeah, no kidding. I, I mean, did I anticipated this from the very beginning. There was no way that was going to happen. So, so who cares? I mean, right. It's like, it's like trying to, it's like if this was like 1950 or something and aircraft manufacturers were trying to deploy auto land capability before they even had basic autopilot working properly. It just doesn't make any sense. I get it. It is. It's a really cool thing to, to hype for excitement in the market. Oh, look, we're working on fully autonomous cars, level five, no steering wheel. Yeah, it sounds great. Keep doing it, but that shouldn't be that shouldn't be the short-term goal. It just shouldn't be, and it mustn't be. Um, because the more we focus on this technologically almost impossible task, at least for the next several years anyway, then the longer we delay deploying the next best thing, which is level four cars deployed on a whole bunch of geofence streets and boulevards and freeways. And the reason we need to fast-track that is, again, just coming down to saving human lives. The sooner we can get more autonomous cars, even if only level four, 
on streets around the world, the, the better it's going to be for everybody. Trying to hold out waiting for level five is, it, I was going to say it's stupid. It's just, it's irresponsible. Anyway, next up then traffic, right? We've got to really, really focus on enacting the right laws and pushing for the right policies that recognize the need to um, really promote car sharing, right? As we've discussed many times in the past, you know, uh, Professor uh, uh, Daniel Sperling from UC Davis, uh, he talks about the the, the three revolutions, right? Electrification, uh, automation, and carpooling. Uh, his whole point being that you need all three of those to properly arrive at this in this futuristic world of autonomous cars. You can't just have one or two of those elements. You need all three. You need a vehicle to be autonomous and electric, and it must be shared before things work. Because if you have only two of those things, right, say autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles, but not shared vehicles, uh, again, BCG, Boston Consulting Group, ran a really great um, study about a year or two ago with World Economic Forum, and they found that, yeah, if you if you had a whole bunch of autonomous cars on the road without, you know, without really um, pushing for car sharing, then you'd see something like a 5.7%, I believe it was, a 5.7% increase in traffic and commensurate travel time. So this is really, really important. And look, if nothing else, just do what we do for carpool lanes. Again, I, I, just, I don't think you have to reinvent the wheel every time. What do we do for carpool lanes, right? Um, we, we penalize people driving in the carpool lane with an empty car, right? Well, do the same thing for autonomous cars. If you've got an empty autonomous car or with one person in there even, but certainly an empty one, you penalize it. You give it a fine. Call it a tax if you like. It's an occupancy tax. And so it can even be like a sliding scale, right? So like the more people you have in the car, um, the less the tax. If it's a fully occupied car, in fact, zero. It's free. It's completely free. Think about that for a second. If you have an autonomous car, which is empty or just one person, it's going to cost you a lot. If you have an empty one, or if you have a totally full one, free, completely free travel. And this really kind of gets to that whole, you know, it makes the math work. These projections that an electrified autonomous car sharing future would drive the cost per passenger mile to just pennies, something like three or four cents. Um, But these things need to be um, encouraged. They need to be pushed with proper law and policy to make it happen. Otherwise, it's just not going to happen. And this then kind of touches on the notion of the needs for kind of modifying road taxes, right? So there's going to be going to have to be obviously some sort of alternative to use space road maintenance taxes, which is effectively going to anticipate the accelerated deployment of electric vehicles and ride sharing, and therefore, of course, the decrease in road taxes. So, you know, these all have to be adapted in time. But my point is, is that you kind of look at this holistically, right? And you realize that indeed, there's a lot that we've got to get right. And my concern, my deeply profound concern is that we don't do it right, that we, that we sort of screw up. And if we screw up, if we don't, if we don't kind of make sure that we get this deployment, well, testing and deployment phase done right, especially as we get into truly autonomous cars, meaning again, level four and eventually level five, if we don't do this right, then it's just going to delay the whole process. And if we delay the whole process, then we're going to keep losing something like 40,000 people per year in the U.S. And however many millions it is worldwide, I'm forgetting the number now. But so th- this is why I'm so, so really passionately in favor of and really 
hoping for uh, eventually an FAVA. And this is why I've kind of, how I've come up with these, this sort of three-pronged approach to really ensuring the smooth deployment of autonomous cars, right? So, look, I know I've touched on a lot of these topics in the past, and so hopefully you didn't think too much of this was kind of recycled material. But for me anyway, personally, um, I, I really wanted to discuss this in greater detail. <laughs> if you pull up the article on Medium, you'll see that I was largely kind of paraphrasing what I wrote. Um, but for me, it was important because it um, not only did this topic turn up a lot, almost every single day in D.C., um, oh, but more recently, too, I was just in Boston uh, again, uh, what, last week, actually, and I had the chance to meet with um, someone who works in the Boston Boston's mayor's office, part of the Autonomous Vehicle Working Group of Boston, and, you know, I presented the exact same thing to him, and, you know, at least anecdotally, I'll say even on the side, just, just the other day, I was at a coffee shop, and <laughs> I ended up in a conversation about this with a woman at the coffee shop, we ended up chatting about this for like 30 minutes, and she was an IP a former IP litigation attorney. And, um, you know, so, so my point is that people really care about this. And, and so I thought it was just the perfect way to jumpstart this season and kind of lay the framework, as I say, for, for the subsequent episodes, because I think it's something that needs to be discussed, um, and evolved time and again, going forward. So, uh, that's why I wanted to raise it today. But, um, anyway, um, I think that's going to be a wrap then for day for today. Uh, you know, it's really great to be back. As I say, I was a little nervous to get back, but I have to be honest, I've really missed doing this podcast. Uh, it is great to be back. And um, without further more to say, then um, have a wonderful rest of the day, rest of the week. And I'll see you back here on Friday. Thank you so much for listening. Bye bye.